A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Coming up on Chopper's Politics... The great irony, though, of Farage <laughs> is that he never really believed in a referendum. I'm Christopher Hope, The Telegraph's associate editor, and this is Chopper's Politics. Well, Parliament is in recess and it's been a hectic start so far to the year, so I thought I'd change the pace up a bit this week and bring you an interview with veteran broadcaster Michael Crick. Now, Michael Crick has written biographies of Alex Ferguson, Michael Heseltine and Geoffrey Archer. And his latest book, Nigel Farage, One Party After Another, tells the story of one man's rise to political power without ever making it into the House of Commons. It's had rave reviews so far from across the political spectrum, so I caught up with Michael to ask him why he chose the controversial figure of Nigel Farage as his latest subject. Michael Crick, welcome to Chopper's Politics. Well, thank you for having me. I'm delighted. Now, you've written a book about Nigel Farage, one party after another, the disrupted life of Nigel Farage. Why? Well, because nobody else had done it. I mean, I was I was waiting for you to do it, Chris. I thought if anybody's going to write a book about <laughs> Nigel Farage, it's going to be Chris Hope. And I waited years and years, and you didn't. No, I mean, seriously, a couple of other people planned to do it. One of them found that uh, Nigel Farage didn't want to cooperate with him. Uh, well, that's not a problem for me. And then there, there was an e-book written some years ago by uh, Matthew Lynn, but it, it was quite short. Um, and of course, he's written his own memoirs twice. So, but I mean, it's a massive gap in the market, I thought. You know, I've been thinking about this for about 10 years now. And uh, there was never a sort of a suitable moment until a couple of years ago. And I thought I'd seize it. I mean, ideally, the book would have come out a few years ago. I, I was struck by the book. Let, let us start with how you say his name. Um, you said that he, he was called Nigel Farage originally. Is that right? Well, that's, that's what boys at Dulwich say he called himself. And, of course, the family name has gone through all sorts of spellings over the centuries. If you go back, each generation seemed to spell it in a different way. And there's some dispute as to whether it was, you know, Farage and it was Huguenot and I think for a while he believed and other people believed it was. But I've come to the conclusion, <laughs> and actually I, I think he has now as well, it's not Huguenot, that the, 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 the thinking there was wrong. And that it was, you know, uh, English, it probably came from something like Far Ridge, you know, somebody who lived on a Far Ridge, perhaps. I remember when, um, when uh, obviously, David Cameron was obsessed, and I mean obsessed by Farage when he was Tory leader, 
And he tried to start calling him Nigel Farage at some point to undermine him because I, I think he felt Farage had a grandeur around it that wasn't quite appropriate for the man. <laughs> there was one occasion when Cameron was in opposition before, you know, while he was Tory leader, but he wasn't yet prime minister. And by amazing coincidence, they both booked holiday homes in Cornwall next door to each other. <laughs> <laughs> and Farage, being the, the guy he is, you know, invited Cameron out for a drink. And Cameron, being the guy that he is, um, declined the invitation. <laughs> <laughs> that just says it all. Yes. I do remember um, seeing you, you know, you, you and I have been around, well, UKIP as it was for the past decade. I remember spotting you um, hiding in the back of a van in Torquay. Um, I said, hello, Michael, what are you doing in there? And you, you, you shh, I'm about, you're about to leap out and you're about to do some kind of, um, one of your brilliant Vox Pops with um, with one of the uh, UKIP leaders. So you're always there trying to just pull their tail and 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 challenge them, and notably on issues such as race, with uh, when you were beaten over the head by Godfrey Bloom, weren't you? That may have been the occasion when I think I was I was banned from the UKIP conference for some silly reason. I, That's it. I think I hadn't filled in the application form or something, and I said, "This is ridiculous. I'll yes. put it in now, yeah. or whatever." And uh, <laughs> and eventually I did get in. But I yeah. mean, occasionally one like you know when one's um, what occasionally does he ambushes in, in television and one doesn't want the world to know you're there. I, I don't recall the incident you, you mentioned, although I do recall some, uh, you know, it was quite fun. when The UKIP held its conference or its spring conference yes. in Torquay on quite a few occasions, including the occasion when Farage and uh, Neil Hamilton fell out big time. <laughs> yes. And um, <laughs> And what was the phrase that Farage used about Neil Hamilton? He was only a sort of bit player or something. And, and Hamilton was absolutely furious with him and uh, made his displeasure known. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was never dull covering UKIP. And you and I also have something in common that we've both been to a proper lunch with him in Boysdales. Yes. And in fact, your lunch, it says here in the intro, ran as long as mine did. Well, yours went to 4pm. I can probably beat yours because mine went to 5pm. We had three bottles and I walked out without paying. So basically, he disappeared off down the West End I went down Victoria Street. I tried to get back to the office to try and write an article about EU regulations and, and jam jars and the WI, and I could barely get my get my words out straight. Then the phone rang. It's Boysdale's. You haven't paid for lunch. It's four hundred quid. That's a bloody hell. <laughs> so I had to go and hastily make my apology and pay over the phone. And then Farage phoned me at six, saying, "Where are you? I'm in the West End." So it just it just carries on, and, and you have a similar story. Well, I only left at four because I had to get back to work. Uh, and he was clearly very disappointed. He'd obviously allocated the whole, I mean, flattering, really. He expected to carry on till till six. But of course, part of the lunch was was interrupted at regular intervals, as it probably was with you, by his cigarette breaks, which were, uh, I haven't been to Boys, Boysdale recently, but certainly they, were, they seemed to have worked out a way of giving their customers cigarette breaks. <laughs> now, I, I'm, Michael Crick, I did, um, I was planning a surprise for you. I was going to ask Nigel Farage onto this podcast to discuss the book. Um, how do you think he reacted when I asked that question of him this morning? Well, uh, given that he's not here, perhaps he, um, well, perhaps he said he hadn't read it yet. Um, Correct. He's not a great book reader, and I, I don't mean that disparagingly. He does read a lot of other stuff, but he's not a great book reader, to, to my knowledge. And um, I think probably he's a bit relieved by the book, you know, that certain other stories that I've never to prove... <laughs> <laughs> aren't in there so um no he, he said and this is totally him actually he's too busy he haven't read it um he has read the reviews though and he he observed the review that uh, simon heffer wrote for telegraph yeah there's bound to be stuff in there he disagrees with 
Uh, in fact, I'd be a bit worried if there wasn't. At heart, I suppose, I'm still a broadcaster, and I've always sort of felt one has to be balanced and fair. Mind you, a lot of people think that broadcasters are anything, but there are biographers who just write what you call hatchet jobs, and they won't say a good thing about their subject. And I think that is just so unsubtle. And, you know, that nobody is all good or all bad. And they're a blend. And it's that blend and the, and the complexity, which is the whole beauty of it and, and uh, the fascination of it. You know, in Farage's case, you know and I know, he can be an utterly charming man, great company, great to have lunch with, great to have a, a drink with, uh, no doubt great to do all sorts of other things with. And yet he can also be, you know, very, very difficult to get on with. He can lose his temper hugely with his colleagues. He has treated his colleagues abominably in many cases over the years. He has purged so many people from uh, the upper levels of UKIP. He had a habit of bringing people into UKIP and the Brexit party and then uh, falling out with them big time, perhaps fearing they might be rivals to him. Neil Hamilton, Suzanne Evans is another good example of that, but there are loads of others. It's an unfortunate habit. And what it meant was that when he gave up being leader of UKIP, although it's very difficult to put a date on it because he gave up being leader of UKIP on a, three or four occasions, um, there was no succession. There was no strong line of possible successors that would carry the party on. Uh, and as a result, the quality, the calibre of UKIP leaders went down and down and down and, and the party degenerated into total chaos and Farage had to find a new party. So reading the book, um, it struck me there are a number of different uh, points in history which could have done for Farage, but they didn't and they, they worked in his favour. I thought a good way of summarising your brilliant book is to go over those. We could start, couldn't we, with proportional representation. Yes. Michael, over to you. If it wasn't for the Labour government under Tony Blair bringing in PR for the European elections in 1999, I don't think we would have ever heard of UKIP or Nigel Farage. And what happened was that the European Union wanted everybody, all the states, to have PR for the European elections. And Labour went along with this and had it in their manifesto and they tried to get it through Parliament. And the House of Lords blocked it six times. And, uh, and Blair said, no, I insist. We've got to get this through. We've got to use the Parliament Act. And the reason being that I've got Paddy Ashdown onto me. And uh, he says that his party will, uh, you know, are in revolt unless we give them something. And so it was a sop, really, to, to Paddy Ashdown. I mean, Blair wanted it, believed in it, but he had huge problems with the Lords. And if Blair had brought PR in in 99, they wouldn't have had the three UKIP MEPs to start with elected that year, including Farage. 12 in 2004, and the figure went up and up and up. What that then gave is it not only gave Farage and his colleagues in the European Parliament status, but much more important than that, it brought in loads of money, you know, around about half a million pounds at least a year per MEP. And most of that money really was not devoted to scrutinising European legislation and the work of being a, a European parliamentarian. It was diverted in various clever ways. And the staff were, were diverted onto UKIP matters. And of course, UKIP regularly used to get into trouble with the European Parliament for doing that. Other parties did it as well, other British parties, but not on the scale that UKIP did. And if UKIP hadn't been in the European Parliament, then I think it would have, I'm not sure Brexit would have happened because at the end of the day, you know, it was only won by 4%. And, uh, and I think that, that was the first important step on the, on the, on the road to uh, Brexit. And the absolute irony, of course, is it was pushed hard, wasn't it, by the Lib Dems? And I think Jack Straw saw the danger. Uh, he did see the danger. And, of course, Jack Straw's worry was that you would get extreme parties. And by that, he wasn't thinking of UKIP. He was thinking of the BNP, which did actually happen later on. The BNP got two 
Euro MPs, including Nick Griffin. And the Greens did extremely well as well. And now that we no longer have elections to the European Parliament, it's much, much harder for any third or fourth or fifth party to establish themselves. And indeed, that then makes it much harder for Farage under, you know, with Reform UK or any other party he wants to form. And he's hinted to you from time to time that he would like to do that. Yeah to come back into politics. I think it's virtually impossible, frankly, unless we get an earthquake of, you know, of, of other developments we haven't even thought of. And, and that idea there you're saying about, uh, well, about our democracy is at the heart of it. I think you could fast forward to 2015, that, that election when UKIP won, I think it was three or four million votes and got one MP. Douglas, Very nearly four million, yeah. Four million. Douglas Carswell was left as their only MP. And then, of course, the SNP got many fewer than that and got dozens of MPs. And I think that idea of a la- of their voice not being heard, I would argue you can draw a line from that vote to the vote in, 20, in 2016 at the EU referendum. But yes, I, I think it's, there's some truth in, in what you say there, that it enabled UKIP and Farage to present this image that, you know, the establishment is all against us. The system is against us. You know, when I stood in South Thanet, uh, he could say, uh, you know, Labour and the Conservatives ganged up against me, which they did. And and the same happened in Buckingham when he stood there. And, you know, first past the post did not do UKIP any favours whatsoever. And uh, and as a result, the only MP who was ever, you know, elected, the only two MPs were Reckless and Carswell at their by-elections. And at a general election, the only MP ever elected was Carswell and Claxton. That was a huge setback for UKIP. But, but what the 2015 election did, and indeed, the whole election strategy leading up to that was to show that a, a, a Eurosceptic party has huge potential, not just in southern England, which is where UKIP started out, you know, the, the golf courses and retirement homes on the south coast, but that in working class areas of the Midlands and the north, where people increasingly felt left out. This, this was where Farage and UKIP developed their strategy in the, in the, in the noughties and the teens. And of course, that was sort of John the Baptist to the Conservative success under Boris Johnson in, in uh, well, I ate the referendum and then in uh, 2019. So Farage, to me, is not, it's not just that Farage played a key role in securing Brexit through the referendum and then the Brexit party, you know, helping eject Theresa May from office and all that. It's also that what happened in those years were the route map, really, to the transformation of British politics that we saw in 2019, where essentially Labour had become a middle class metropolitan party and the Conservatives had become the working class party. The traditional roles were reversed. And that was, I think a lot of that was because of, of what went before through in UKIP, Brexit Party and the referendum. Yeah. And, and then so if you fast forward from 1999, the, the next moment may be David Cameron dropping his pledge to repeal the Lisbon Treaty. Yes, that. And also... You had a string of promises from Labour and the Conservative, and indeed the Lib Dems, that they would have a referendum, you know, on, on, on either in-out membership or the euro or some other aspect of it. And again and again and again, they, they found excuses not to have this referendum. I think if there'd been a referendum on one aspect of Europe at an earlier stage in the, in the 90s or the noughties, that might have taken a lot of the sting out of the debate and made it harder to have a second referendum um, or, or, and to, for the Brexit side to win a second referendum. Yeah. I mean, the next stage, I think, between 2006 and 2009, UKIP were actually, under Farage's first three years of leadership, UKIP were doing really badly. And the BNP were hammering them all over the place. The far right, extreme right, were beating 
UKIP. And, uh, you know, in places like the Henley by-election, I think UKIP were beaten by about two to one by uh, the BNP. And Farage was in real trouble. And then, ironically, he was saved by the MPs' expenses affair, which you on the Telegraph like to claim credit for. <laughs> and uh, and uh, with some justification. <laughs> and... Uh, what happened was that in the Euro elections that occurred that spring, just after the expenses story broke, a lot of people who would have voted Conservative, Liberal Democrat or Labour were so disgusted by the behaviour of the traditional Westminster parties that they revolted and rescued Farage in that Euro election where it looked like he was going to head for a really bad result. And actually, he came out of that election with more MEPs than he had before. And in, in the 2010s, then, he started winning uh, more vote share, didn't he, at by-elections through the kind of 20, 2010, 2015 period. And the, the big moment building up to the 2014 European Parliament election, always a free hit for the electorate against the ruling party, when I think he won, didn't he? Yes, uh, the UKIP did win the 2014 Euro elections. The crucial thing there was, first of all, the Liberal Democrats going into government thereby resigned their traditional position as the natural party of protest, enabled UKIP to take over as the natural party of protest. And they suddenly took up and every by-election, the, the result was better than the previous one. And Conservatives started panicking and, and Karen, Cameron panicked in my yes. view. Uh, and hence the promise of the referendum in the Bloomberg speech. There was a serious fear that UKIP would win enough MPs to hold the balance of power. And indeed, that's what they hoped. Although, of course, it never happened because people kept making the mistake that although they'd done well in Euro elections, it then the vote then collapsed when, it, when, when life returned to the traditional first-past-the-post. The other crucial thing when it came to the referendum is the timing of the referendum. Cameron wanted it quick. And the trouble was the Mediterranean migration crisis occurred. Hundreds of thousands of migrants crossing the Mediterranean into southern and eastern Europe. This dominated the headlines for the whole of the, the summer of 2015 and into 2016. And that was the worst time to be holding a referendum. And of course, both of the campaigns, it wasn't just uh, the UKIP campaign, Leave EU, but Vote Leave to a large extent as well, although they, were, they weren't very proud of doing so, exploited the, the immigration issue. And of course, Leave EU famously with the breaking point poster, but in all yes, sorts it, of other it, ways exactly. as and well. I, and I guess what Farage may not want to admit is that without the Vote Leave campaign and the, the Tory, um, Tory cabinet ministers who backed that, the five or six who, was, who told Cameron they were going to fight to leave the European Union. And of course, then Johnson, Boris Johnson joined that from, from his position in City Hall at the back end of that campaign. Um, I guess Farage may not want to admit it, but <clears throat> without that support of the Cummings effort, that, that kind of pincer movement meant that, that, that Leave vote won. Let's not go too much into that again. But, I mean, that, that's what happened. I, I take the view that having two campaigns, effectively, uh, was a help. Uh, it was a bit like having the official IRA and the provisional IRA. And um, the, the, the... <laughs> it's, not, it's nothing like that at all. It's nothing like that at all. <laughs> you, you can't say it's like the IRA. It's nothing like the IRA. You mean there are two campaigns? Yes, I get that. You had one that was, um, you know, Leave EU, which uh, was for absolutely committed Brexiteers. Uh, and then you had Vote Leave, which was much more designed to uh, try and attract the wavering voter who was thinking of voting uh, Brexit. And if they'd all been in one campaign, or indeed, if Leave EU, the Farage lot, had won the designation as the official campaign, I don't think Brexit would have won that referendum because it would have put off 
moderate Brexiteers, people who, uh, you know, weren't entirely sure, but in the end did vote for Brexit. The Telegraph brings you a new podcast series, Eyewitnessed History. Harry, will you take Meghan to be your wife? The moments we all remember. I will. Told by Telegraph journalists who were there. You remember how magical and remarkable it all was, and it makes you feel sad that they're no longer a part of the royal family. Follow Eyewitnessed History in the same place you're listening to this. And of course, um, we, we know that the Leave campaign won the 2016 election. And yet still, I think um, the establishment, such as it is, kept getting it wrong with Farage because they, I think rather stupidly, Theresa May had those Euro elections in 2019 when I think the Tories came last, I think, or they came last of the major parties. I mean, uh, uh, what a complete cock up that was, because that drove the degree of of, of kind of middling panic in the Tory party to kind of stratospheric levels, didn't it? They could have delayed, I think, and they could have said, we're leaving anyway, let's, let's delay for, for six months. Well, the interesting thing about, I mean, Farage, Farage and Bre- the Brexit party, I think, got 29% and 29 MPs, and the Conservatives got 9% and three MEPs. But the fascinating thing about that is that the Brexit party very nearly never happened, because um, originally it was founded by a woman called uh, Catherine Blakelock, who, uh, with Farage's uh, connivance, and she was then discovered by Hope Not Hate and The Guardian to have issued various all sorts of uh, racist remarks on social media. And Farage purged her as leader and took over himself. But she held on to the levers of power within the Brexit party. She had the it was based around a, a limited company. She was the sole shareholder and the sole director. She had the uh, signature on the bank account. She had the PayPal account and she refused to hand these over until the very last moment. And there they were begging her. And, and she said, well, I'm not going to hand them over unless you let me, let me be a candidate in the Euros. And Farage said, no, you can't be a candidate after what you said. It will be a total distraction. And he sort of fobbed her off by saying, but you can be a candidate whenever the general election is. And it very ne- she very nearly brought the whole party tumbling down because they couldn't have founded another party with only days to go. You've got to get registration and so on. And, and um, it, you know, you, you wouldn't have had the, the extraordinary defeat for... Uh, Theresa May in the Euros, and you wouldn't have had the effect that it then had on the Conservatives. I mean, there was a period in the summer of 20, uh, 2019 where the Brexit Party, in six opinion polls, they were number one. And it looked like they might, you know, they were terrified. Again, the Tories were over terrified by them, I think, unnecessarily frightened by them. Uh, and it, and it, it was largely partly deflated by the Peterborough by election. If the Brexit Party were ever going to win a by-election, it was Peterborough, in just the right place. But they were utterly disorganised on the ground. And that's one of the disadvantages that UKIP and the Brexit Party always had. They were never any good at fighting individual seats. They were only ever good at making an impact in a nationwide election. Were there any surprises you found in the book? One that struck me, I think, was that Craig McKinley, who fought him in the 2015 election, Farage was his client, unbelievably, at some point, because McKinley is an accountant. Yes, one of the running themes of the book, that he and Craig McKinley, they were the great young Turks of UKIP. When UKIP was founded in 2002-2003, originally called the Anti-Federalist League, uh, you know, all of them were 50 or above, and, you know, and, and quite a long way above in many cases. And, and McKinley and Farage were about 30. They're very close in age. And they were the bright young 
you know, youth of UKIP. And they were sort of friends and rivals, as you often get in politics. And McKinley used to do Farage's accounts for his, um, for his trading company. I mean, McKinley was a, a leading figure in UKIP. He was acting leader for about six months. He was chairman. He was treasurer. He was one of the, the key figures in that early part of, of uh, UKIP. But he's, again, one of those people that Farage along the way falls out with. And it's, it's not just McKinley, but several other UKIP leaders blame their demise on Farage, his machinations behind the scenes. And for a long time in the early days of UKIP, Farage was the power within the party, but he, he didn't want to be the leader. And he only decided in the end to be leader, which is quite sensible in a way, because you, as, as William Hague had shown around the same period, you can come to the leadership too young in life. Um, he left it until 2006. And even then, you know, his first few years as UKIP leader weren't a great success. It was only the second term when he returned after the plane crash and fighting Buckingham, because he took a year off, if you remember, to fight the election in Buckingham. It was only his second term that things really took off. Do you, what, what lesson have you picked up? I mean, my, what I will say to people about Farage is he is consistently underestimated by the, the, the all-knowing, all-seeing experts in, in, in Westminster, because I think, I think he does see the ability to see around corners, I think, which is, which is often missing among a lot of, a lot of politicians I see. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. And I think Farage, his strengths are communications. He is the, the greatest communicator of our age, even better than Boris Johnson, in my view. And he's, he's great right across, across the range in the parliamentary chamber. He learned the art of sound bites that would be picked up on YouTube and so on, um, on the radio and the television. And of course, he's been a, a very successful broadcaster in, in recent years. And above all, um, on the street. He, he loves engaging with the general public and he loves having a good argument on the street. And, uh, he, you know, one of his colleagues at LBC was saying that when he did the radio programme there, he, he found it a bit boring if sort of admirers rang up and said, oh, Mark, Nigel, I do love you. I think you've, uh, you know, you've done such wonderful things for this country. He found that boring. He really loved it when somebody rang up and tried to have an argument with him. And I've seen him on the street many times, as you have. And he does enjoy that in a way that I don't think Boris Johnson does. No, well, what's always funny about him is if you meet him for a cup of coffee, he always insists on sitting on the pavement yes. where he gets beeped at by taxi drivers. Now, he does that. The, the pretense is, I need to have a cigarette. But yes. Of course, he's doing it because he wants to be seen. And he loves all the kind of <laughs> cheers, all the, yeah. all the, and all the, all the, the but, but, you but, know, but, builders but, yelling at him from their vans. He, he loves it. Every photograph of Farage, you see, well, most of them, he's got a prop. Is either his hat or a cigar or a yes. document or a. It's like it's like Wilson. It's like Wilson the pipe. It's Harold Wilson the pipe. He had his his bookies jacket on with the. Foot. Yeah, and, and but he's got so many props. But above all, I think Farage has got an understanding of public opinion that very few, amazingly, very few people in public life have. I'd I'd I'd, I'd say Tony Blair had it and has it, and I would say Rupert Murdoch has it. An understanding of what the public think and what they will think into the future and what if you propose something and whether something will fly or not. And that is, that is, and that is why he's, he's, a, he's a good strategist and could see what was likely to happen and he could see things coming and the way in which the wind was, was, was drifting. The great irony, though, of Farage <laughs> is that he never really believed in a referendum. <laughs> he, he thought, I mean, I think this, this sounds bonkers now, he thought the parliamentary road to Brexit was the answer, that you would get, you know, some UKIP MPs elected eventually, uh, that they would then ally with uh, 
Eurosceptics in the Conservative Party. And somehow there would be enough to form a majority in the House of Commons. I don't see how that ever would have happened. Um, but w- and whenever people want to propose the idea of a referendum, he was always very lukewarm about it. And indeed, there was an occasion, you'll recall, when Nicky Sinclair, the former UKIP MEP, who was another person who fell out with Farage in a big way, and she left the party, and she um, spotted the new provision in the brought in by the coalition government, whereby if you went round with a petition and got 100,000 signatures, you were entitled to a debate in the House of Commons. So Nikki Sinclair spent all summer going round in her caravan, getting the signatures, and um, Farage made it clear to UKIP members that they weren't supposed to, he didn't really want them to sign. Eventually, she got the debate in the Commons, and it was a big, massive Tory revolt. It was really a turning point. Uh, and Farage de- describes it at, at huge length in his, his memoirs. And on College Green, on the day of the debate, Nikki Sinclair said, I don't know why you're here. You never signed the petition. Here it is now. You can sign it now. And she embarrassed him on television into signing the call for a referendum. If, if I may, may, Michael, what do you think drives him? I mean, for me, he's he's definitely a patriot. He'd be so happy with a knighthood he'll never get, probably. Um, he just, you know, he's, 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 his body has taken a physical battering. You mentioned the plane crash earlier in 2010 when, when that um, banner got wrapped around the tail of the plane over Buckingham on, on election day. He has, you know, he is in pain and I saw him in pain on the election trail. And a lot would, of, I think the pain you know, actually I mean, explains he, his irascibility that, that, that people saw quite a lot in that period and is falling out with people. And it may even have contributed to a hardening of his... Pol- I mean, uh, um, uh, Dan Hannan, uh, reckons that was a period of about four years when Farage's politics were much more aggressive and he was mixing with people like Steve Bannon and Raheem Kassam, his, uh, one of his advisors here, and uh, Aaron Banks. And it was a very masculine, uh, you know, boys, uh, boys club, one of the lads sort of politics and much more hardline. And he was mixing in Europe with some pretty unsavoury characters. It only lasted about four years. And it's possible that the, the, the plane crash had a, had a role in that. Perhaps not. Maybe I'm, I'm taking that too far. But certainly uh, the plane crash uh, was, was, was uh, crucial. And of course, he came within you know, inches of death. And if he had done, again, history would have been very different. I don't think he's a racist. And I think a lot of people will be uh, disappointed that I reached that conclusion. At heart, I don't think he's a racist. I think he's an old-fashioned I mean, this is Richard North's theory, and I go along with it. He's an old-fashioned, born uh, in English, you know, a bit like Winston Churchill was in the early 20th century. He believes in the, you know, the, the superiority of Englishmen, which you could say is a form of racism. And I think at times, aspects of his campaigns have pandered to racists. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far as to say he is a racist. I think he, you know, he gets on well with people from ethnic minorities, but. Uh, he has mixed in the European Parliament and in America to a smaller degree with some pretty unsavoury characters in, for, in the European Parliament. You know, every time he had to form a group in order to get extra money and he, Farage would be the leader of the group. But I think the other thing is the great contradiction within Farage is that he is the he's an establishment rebel. You know, when he was at Dulwich College, he loved baiting masters, if you f- forgive the phrase, he loved, uh, you know, annoying the English department where most masters were left of centre and uh, being a troublemaker. But yet, on the other hand, you know, he dressed smartly. He's always gone to Dulwich Old Boys uh, events uh, on a huge scale. 
he likes going to gentlemen's clubs. He, he, he wants to be offered a knighthood. He wants to be offered a peerage. He wanted to be invited by the Foreign Office and Downing Street to tell them all about Trump and what Trump had told him. He loves being in close proximity to the leaders of Europe in the European Parliament. And there was a period when he was close to them and he was also close to um, uh, Trump. And, and, you know, he'd love it uh, being a minister. And indeed, that was one of the demands that uh, uh, he and uh, Richard Tice were making uh, of the go-betweens that they had with uh, the Conservatives in the autumn of 2019, when there was a possibility, a remote possibility, I think, of a pact between the Brexit Party and, and the Tories. And so there's always been that contradiction. He, he would love it, really, to get that kind of public recognition. And uh, he, he loved the good life. He loves, he's, you know, to, to claim he's a pure man of the people. Um, it's only half the story is really what I'm saying. Um, but I, I, the final question, Michael Crick, is where will history judge him? I mean, I know some other people have made some quite grandiose statements about him. You've spent uh, the past few months of your life writing a biography. You spent 10 years planning in Farage, where is he? Is he one of the top five political figures of the past five decades? Is that ridiculous? Where is he? No, I think he. I think he is. I think he's as important as Blair. I, I, I don't think he's quite as important as Thatcher. Uh, I think he's, in, he's more important than some prime ministers. How history judges him really uh, will depend on. Uh, will be partly depend on what happens to Brexit. Is Brexit a great success um, or not? Well, it, uh, you know, I really remain. I'm not a passionate Remainer, but I, I would vote for it again. Uh, and I can't see the benefits of Brexit really at the moment, but I'm willing to, um, you know, we won't really know for another 20 or 30 years, really, whether Brexit was a great idea or not. And uh, if it turns out to be the great liberation of this country and a massive boost to the British economy, uh, Farage will have a, a heroic place in history, uh, as indeed he has for many Brexiteers already. If Brexit turns out to be a disaster and we end up drifting behind all the other West European economies and so on, then... Um, uh, Farage will get a lot of the blame, but certainly he will have a big role in history, uh, which is remarkable, really. Uh, there are not many political figures who, in fact, I don't think there are any uh, in modern times who've played such a role in politics without ever being a member of the House of Commons. And remember, he won elections for two different parties, the UKIP in 2014 in the Euros and the Brexit Party in 2019. Do you think he might ever get a statue? Well, it's up to whether, you know, people like you uh, club together. And, uh, statue. Well, well, <laughs> you are, is... I'm gonna, you're assuming too much about my politics here, Michael Crick. I'm, I'm not going to take it anymore. <laughs> well, Michael Crick, your book, One Party After Another, The Disruptive Life of Nigel Farage, is out now from Simon & Schuster, priced £25. But I would say it's definitely worth a read for anybody interested in the life and times of this extraordinary politician. But Michael Crick, thank you for joining us from the Lake District on this week's Chopper's Politics. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's all for this week. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it like I have. We'll put a link to Simon Heffer's review of the book in The Telegraph, which I referred to in the interview there with Michael Crick, in the show notes to this episode to see if you agree. Thank you to my guest today, Michael Crick. Thank you to my producers, Giles Gear, Louisa Wells and Theodora Luludis. But most importantly of all, thank you to you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And of course, please do buy a copy of The Daily Telegraph if you can. You won't regret it. Until next time, though, cheerio. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.